This session we're going to look at really should be a whole weekend in itself. So we've got a lot to cover. You can, we'll try to follow the notes a little more this time. <clears throat> so after the Civil War, there were some pretty major changes in society. One of the first was urbanization. Uh, as they made advances in agriculture, one man was able to farm much more and he was able to produce much more, so there was fewer jobs available in the country. At the same time, industrialization in the factory system was creating a bunch of jobs in the city and now thanks to new sources of power, steam engines, you could have these factories in the city, they didn't have to be by rivers and things. So there was a mass migration from the countryside to the city as people got better paying jobs in the factory system. Also at the same time, there was mass immigration from Europe. In the mid-1840s, there was a potato famine in Ireland where there was several starved, I think a couple million, I'm something around there, Irish immigrated to Canada and the US, settling a lot in uh, the Boston, New York area. There was also almost constant war in Europe in the 1800s, and so a lot of them were fleeing and coming to the United States. Jews were also fleeing pogroms in, in Russia and other persecution. They were immigrating to the United States. So in the last half of the 1800s, just a huge influx of new cultures, new religious ideas. Up until the Civil War, America, aside from the slavery, was pretty much white and Protestant. But with this mass migration, a lot of Roman Catholic ideas came, a lot of Jewish ideas came, and it just, really shook US, U.S. society, but especially in the city. Now, the cities were not prepared for this huge influx of people. When you have this many people coming together, you have disease, you have problems with sanitation, especially if the cities aren't able to be set up for it, the sewage systems aren't handled for it, uh, even markets, food, they just weren't prepared for this. So it created slums and areas in the center of town that even people were getting amazingly rich in the middle of the cities was a mass of people who were living in squalor and poverty. So there was a huge level inequality. Now something else that the Industrial Revolution changed is before the Industrial Revolution, if you learned a trade and you became a skilled laborer and you could charge a fair wage for your work with everything becoming assembly line or machines doing the majority of the work, you were basically reduced to mindless labor. So anybody could get a job for this. And if you went on strike or if you didn't like the work or you got injured, you were very replaceable. So the worker didn't have much of a bargaining power as an individual. So because of this, a lot of labor unions and strikes and a lot of labor unrest became a really big thing in the late 1800s to try to compensate for this. You also, though, didn't have power over your time anymore. When you were 
a tradesman, you set your hours, you owned your tools. When you worked at a factory, you no longer had your tools to fall back on. You didn't pick the hours and you were away from your family. <clears throat> the industrialization of America and the urbanization put a major dent in family structure because before families learned to trade and they would work together while they were doing whatever job they had and that strengthened the family ties. <clears throat> the family got broken up as young men especially went to the cities or daughters went to the cities. Now when you're in your rural community everybody knows who you are and there's a form of accountability there that if you are caught with some other in a compromising position or committing some sin, people know who you are, you're bringing dishonor to your family. You move to the city, nobody knows who you are. So you can just be whoever you want to be. Plus, you don't have the accountability of siblings or friends, and you also have a host of new temptations before you with uh, liquor and prostitution and theater and other forms of gambling, just a bunch of new temptations and so this led to a real moral decline. Now you also had as an increased wage you had for the one of the first times you had expendable money. You had some extra time to kill and you had extra money in your pocket. This was businessmen tried to figure out new ways to get this extra money you had in your pocket. And one of the ways they did was through the penny press or yellow journalism. Newspapers could be cranked out thanks to new technologies in paper and, and printing very inexpensively. So they would attract journalists who would write very sensational, sometimes lurid stories about celebrities and where you lived in a lot of curiosity about what went on in the seedy underside. These papers would tell you what went on and they became very popular and these places papers would compete with each other and newspaper became not so much devoted to truth but a, a form of entertainment to sell. Um, other changes were new technologies especially towards the end of the 1800s with electricity. That provided a whole new power source that just enabled a bunch of new inventions. There's also discoveries of oil which saved the whale <laughs> because that was the main source of heating before kerosene was whale oil and they almost hunted them to extinction. But then there was kerosene and then there was oil and then a whole bunch of new uses for oil, especially when the combustion engine came along. So there, there was the telephone in 1876 for the first time. There was the telegraph which came in the late 1840s by Samuel Morris. Railroad enabled you to develop your goods wherever and ship them to places. So just huge opportunities. The government at this time also subscribed to Adam Smith's theory laissez-faire, which is governments should just let economics and business have a free hand. That as they sorted out self-interest will enable, will, will, will be the best. That government regulation will stifle growth. Government should just be there protecting it. And there were several men, they were called robber barons, who took advantage of this by forming monopolies. Adam Smith's principle works on competition. That two men competing for your dollar are going to strive to produce the best product at the lowest price. 
But if you get two people with a monopoly, and they're the only ones producing this product, and you're forced to get it from them, well, you, then they can get a much higher, more profit from that. And so people were consolidating the railroads, they were consolidating oil, the steel industries, and making huge profits. <clears throat> Along with this newfound wealth, there was real political corruption in the 1800s. This wealth was a new form of power. You could buy off votes. This was the era before the secret ballot. So everybody knew how you voted. And because of that, you could be pressured, your vote could be bought, your vote could be, you could be pressured into voting either with carrot or stick, money for voting or punishment if you didn't vote. And in Tammany, there was a corrupt organization, Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed in New York, and he would give jobs to immigrants. This is where a lot of these immigrants, and he just had his whole kingdom of um, corruption, being able to buy votes and manipulate people. Teddy Roosevelt was one of his first jobs was to try to combat and break this corruption. So that's a little bit of a, a picture of the changes, the social changes that were happening in the 1800s. There was also uh, kind of this new idolatry in science and the idea of progress. <coughs> this post-mill idea that God's kingdom was going to advance became accepted by everybody, not just Christians anymore, but everybody who thought progress means forward motion. And if science is going to save us all, in 1859, Darwin's The Origin of Species came out, and later his book, The Descent of Man. But Darwin's had this theory that this, it's natural selection weeds out the weak, and it's the survival of the fittest. And so as the survival of the fittest, there's always progress. It's going forward. So this was a fascinating idea. And so they started thinking, well, this idea of progress must also be applying to the world of ideas, that the false ideas are going to get weeded out, and the new ideas are the ones that are always better. So people wanted to be progressive. What was the new idea? The new idea was the idea that was going to be true. This was different than, say, the Reformation, where if you wanted truth, you went back to the original Christianity. So the idea, if it was older, it was better, became replaced with, if it was newer, it was better. There was also attacks coming out of Germany um, that were looking at things atheistically and scientifically so that they had pretty much cast doubt on the Bible being the inspired word of God, and it was simply of a collection of mythical documents written by men and if it couldn't be proven, it was doubted. I mean, and since this time, so much archaeological evidence has confirmed the Bible to be the written word of God, but this was before so many of the texts were found and archaeological discoveries. So these German writers were saying this were all a myth, the Gospels were written in the two to three hundreds, and it was accept it. And this was quite a change because up until the Civil War, even though America wasn't universally a church-going nation, church attendance was probably still down around 40 or 50 percent. But theologically, it was almost universal that the Bible was respected as God's word. And there was a real interest in theology. 
And these attacks based, one, the theory of evolution, which undermined the argument from design and creation, and these higher criticisms that treated the Bible just as a man-made text and delighted in the supposed contradictions, shook people's faith in the Bible. <clears throat> in Europe, they were ahead of the time, and they had already been a more of an adopting of these atheistic ideas. So your faith in the Bible came, uh, was shattered by a mind-centered humanism, the Enlightenment, where the head was what was important. In the 1700s, there was a German group, the Pietists, who said that just head knowledge is dead Christianity. True Christianity is not true Christianity until it reaches the heart, until it's felt, which was a very needed corrective, but it swung so far that it made, it denied or it downplayed the mind and the truth and made it more of an experience-based Christianity. Now, the, an experience-based Christianity was great news for people who's hearing these intellectual attacks on the Bible. They would go, I have experienced Jesus in my heart. It doesn't matter what science says. It doesn't matter what these German theologians have said. I have experienced Jesus in my heart. I know it's real. There was a whole swing towards making Christianity something you experienced. And liberalism came out of this. Because Christians started, stopped arguing with firm logical truths, all that was left was kind of the realm of the emotion and experience. Lyman Beecher's son, Henry Ward Beecher, who was known as one of the famous, most famous preachers in America, had really struggled with his father's harsh Calvinism. He just, his God seemed distant and cruel, and he, in turn, came to just view Jesus as a God of love, and he really preached love. Whereas before, the Puritans had a real distrust for wealth, that it would corrupt you, they were on guard against the power of sin. In this big New York circle that Henry Ward Beecher preached to, where a lot of people had newfound wealth and felt guilt about what they had done during the week and just whether they should be really enjoying this newfound affluence, he was just kind of a soothing balm to their conscience, saying, it's just enjoy the love of God. But at the same time, he was removing some of the harder to swallow aspects of Christianity. Henry Ward Beecher became a universalist where he denied the existence of hell. He denied the existence of God's anger. Uh, <clears throat> all these things where it was just a, pretty much a God in his making. It led to scandals as he had affairs with different women and I don't know if he was really saved. Some of these are some of the consequences, but he led towards a real shaping. I, I listed some characteristics here of American liberalism that Henry Ward Beecher taught, where the kingdom of God was no longer in tension with the kingdom of man like it had been throughout history. And there should be a tension. The kingdom of God is what challenges the kingdom of man to repent and keeps the kingdom of man on track because Christians realize our citizenship is from heaven, not primarily an earthly citizenship. But this liberalism blurred the distinction. The kingdom of God was just whatever progress a man. Rather than religion being about seeking 
fellowship with the Holy Spirit in the supernatural realm, it adopted the skepticism of supernatural and reduced religion basically to morality. It was just trying to be a good person and receiving God's love. Uh, Beecher was a product of the age of Romanticism. During the age of the Enlightenment, like I said, it was all just based on rationality, questioning things. But we, it also kind of contributed to the Protestants. The Protestants were so, placed so much effort, uh, emphasis after the Reformation on the mind as the way to experience truth. And they saw that what the Roman Catholics were using as far as music, ceremony, art, ritual, experience, they said, those are all just false. They're leading people away. Truth is found strictly in the mind. So the Protestants became iconoclasts, smashing all these things that people had experienced Christianity before, saying they're all idols. And they left Christianity as a very stark, just a mind thing. And that also led to secularization, because you get rid of your reminders and the experience of God, but people cannot live just as brains. We need experience. So the age of romanticism was a swing the other direction. Instead of logic and truth, it was all about emotion and experience. And we're going to see this even affected D.L. Moody. Whereas other preachers preached a firm conviction based on truth, Finney really urged, tried to reach people's emotions. It was about the will and the experience. Other ideas at this time, because of this theory of evolution, people started seeing us as evolved animals, and the God part of us, the, God, the part of us that was made in the image of God was not our bodies, but our souls. And so people downplayed the physical part of us as not made by God, as just the evolved animals, and so things like alcohol and sex were denounced as evil because they were all just part of the animal desires. And uh, you still, Christians still preach a similar idea, especially when they warn against music. They sing music, it appeals to your animal instinct, whereas it's truth that needs to be reaching the mind. But the thing is, that's not how the Bible teaches the man. The Bible, when it talks about the flesh, is not just talking about the physical flesh, it's talking about the fallen nature. And it's because of, of that translation. The flesh is not just referring to the body's appetites, because God created those. Those are good. We're not just evolved animals. So D.L. Moody, <coughs> strapping farm boy, had a real gift of persuasion. Just He was a born salesman. He became a Christian and decided that he just wanted to devote the rest of his life to sell Christianity to people. He would go through these slums, try to lure people into his Sunday schools with candy. Uh, he would come repeatedly pestering the parents, please let me bring your kid to Sunday school until the parent would finally relent. Moody only had maybe a grade four, grade five education, and he didn't read much, but as he grew as a Christian, he had a passion for God's word. He made a, ha a habit of rising at four in the morning 
almost every day and studying God's word for hours because he wanted so much to know that the message he was preaching was God's word. Moody tried to, because he's a salesman at heart, he tried to make Christianity something simple, something that the common person could understand. He was adopting these changing eschatology as this idea of optimism about the future was hijacked by liberals. There was a group of Christianity that said, rethought this whole eschatology thing, and a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, who founded the Plymouth Brethren in England, his ideas became more popular in the States, and D.L. Moody did a large played a large role in popularizing these ideas. But these saw the kingdom of God not as something to be advanced right now, but they saw the kingdom of God as belonging strictly to the millennium, which they believed would start when Jesus returned. So this period that we're in was no longer an age of optimism and growth where we could see Jesus move. It was an age where we were to be on guard against heresy, on guard against corruption, and the chief goal of a Christian was to come out among them and be separate. Before, Christians had a reforming mindset, which was very different than the Anabaptists, you know, people who like the Hutterites and the Amish, where they think the way to be a true Christian is not to try to meet the needs of society, it's just to come out and stay pure and be separate. And this was the idea that was becoming predominant through D.L. Moody's revivals. D.L. Moody said that God has told me that this world is sinking and he's given me a lifeboat and go save as many people as you can. That was what motivated D.L. Moody's evangelism. He reduced the gospel to a pretty fair, he got the essentials, it was his three R's, that we were ruined by sin, that we were redeemed by Christ's blood, and that we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. If you read his messages, they are very theologically sound. He got the essence. We are not just good people who have had a bad environment. We are broken sinners in rebellion against God, that we need Christ's blood. We don't just need to clean ourselves up, but also that we have no hope of becoming the people God wants us to be until we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The last several years of his life, the message that he preached over and over was the need of the new birth. <clears throat> so Moody was inviting people and having great success. We do see a couple changes though. God did a major work right before the Civil War in the hearts of businessmen across America, and it was called the Businessmen's Revival. And these businessmen were convicted that they wanted to use their money, and this continued long after the Civil War, but they wanted to use their money to, in the service of God. And one of the ways they thought the best way to spend their money was to invest in revivalists and pay for tents and meetings and publicity, to use their money in this way. Part of the problem with this, though, is when you're a businessman, you're always thinking in terms of, is this worth it? Where's the best use of my money? So they were actually calculating how much a certain revivalists were, how, how many converts per dollar 
they were achieving. And whereas before, once you claimed to have a new birth, there was a probation period to see if it was a genuine conversion, now you were signing a card saying that you were converted and they were being counted and calculated. This wasn't Dio Moody so much, but this was a real concern of the businessmen behind him who were investing in him. And we see this even more so in the next generation with Billy Sunday. <laughs> Billy Sunday was a fascinating character. He was a baseball player. His, his dad had died in the Civil War, but he was a baseball player in the late 1800s. He fell in love with a bat boy's sister who was a Christian. He, after he became a Christian, he went into the revival business. He would shake hands, someone timed him 57 hands per minute, just a very quick, he was part of an age of athletic Christianity. People like Teddy Roosevelt said, the reason young people aren't Christians is they see the emotional simpering man of the Victorian age who delights in poetry. We need to show them masculine Christianity and the Boy Scouts moved out of this and Eric Little was a, pro was a product of masculine Christianity. And it, it redefined gender roles. Some people think it, it led to World War, helped lead to one war, World War I because it was a, kind of a partial picture of what it means to be a man. Because as I'm proof of being in touch with your emotions doesn't make you less of a man. <laughs> but with Billy Sunday, it was also, and we see with D.L. Moody, there was a real trend towards anti-intellectualism. Because both D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday saw that people who were thinking too much were becoming, who were educated, they were the ones becoming liberal and astray. They both said, no, what's important is not thinking and developing complex ideas. The thing is to be a man of action, to have your heart changed and you just, go at it. So D.L. Moody, for example, wasn't interested in understanding social theory or politics or economics or government. He said all this, all society needs is for people's hearts to be changed, which he got his priorities straight. That is the most important thing, is that regeneration. But the thing is, I firmly believe that God also cares about every aspect of our life. God cares about doing science well. He cares about doing government well. He cares about doing economics well. And all of these things. And there are complex ideas. Like if you care about the poor in society, and we're going to look at this in a little bit, do you just give them money? Is that the best way to alleviate the poor? Or does God care about their character and their development? And once you realize, okay, these things are a little more complex than I thought, and it's not just enough to be a man of emotion, that we actually need to obey Jesus' command of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And this was something that happened that among D.L. Moody in this whole time, is when the eschatology changed, there was no time given to complex theories because this was a sinking ship. When you are on a sinking ship, you don't care about the complexity of life. All you want to do is get as many people into your lifeboat as you can. So there was a whole generation of where the true believers were who had kind of reacted against this idea of education. And the Christians who were getting educated, going to schools, 
were the ones who were experiencing this liberalism, this denial of things like the supernatural, the deity, the denial of the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the authorship of scripture, new scientific ideas. And so by the 1920s, we have a group of fundamentalists who think that they're the only ones left who have protected true Christianity. And because of this eschatology change, you no longer had an optimism about what God was, could do in your denomination. You didn't have an optimism about what God could do in the world. In fact, you saw social decay and liberalism in your denomination as good news because it meant Jesus was coming sooner. There was prophecy conferences in 1886, a man by the name of A.J. Frost is quotes in his notes, but he used statistics about how America and England, crime was on the rise, divorce was on the rise, indecent assault was on the rise, there was liberalism. He just said the end's near because this world is just getting so bad. And that just continued to be a predominant theme of just pessimism about the future. And w you see the two ways, I think, that Satan likes to neutralize Christians. One is where you are so optimistic about the future that you no longer are pessimistic about the nature of man. And so you aren't careful to guard your soul. You aren't careful to be discerning. You aren't dependent on God because you just have this rosy picture that everything's going to be just fine and you become neutralized as a Christian as you fall into error and heresy like the liberal Christians did. The other way Satan neutralizes Christians is when they become so aware of the power of sin and the human nature that they no longer think about Christ's power or Christ's promises. And so they're so aware of man's depravity and the power of Satan and the power of error that you just feel like this is what it means to truly be a Christian is just to become pessimistic and just kind of go into your corner until Christ comes. The Puritans who had who were truly salt in society achieved that perfect balance. Awe of the power of God and optimism about what he could do coupled with a strong cynicism about human nature and the power of sin and the power of evil and when Christians historically have held both of these intention. They have made for a dynamite Christian. But if you ever lose one or the other, you just slip into apathy and you lose your saltiness. <clears throat> Another trend that was happening in the late 1800s was the holiness movement, which led to the Keswick movement. Remember how last session I talked about how Calvinists had a strong sense of our sin and that how we needed to be on guard against sin our whole lives and how Wesley changed and said no you don't give yourself license to just stay a defeated Christian Christ's power for you to overcome sin is available in this life which morphed into perfectionism which completely denied the sin and made people calloused consciences and made them arrogant but the Keswick movement kind of went between these balances where you still were aware of the power of sin, but you also had an awareness of God's power. And they used the example of a hot air balloon. 
that when that hot air balloon was filled with God's spirit, it would rise above the power of sin. But whenever you lost God's spirit, gravity would bring you right back down into the power of sin. And the way in this movement to achieve the Holy Spirit's power was through surrender, was through complete dependence on God. And it became a real radical transformation. It was known as the second blessing, where you would be saved, but you were still kind of a carnal Christian until you reached a place of perfect surrender. The hymn, I Surrender All, came out of this. The Hannah Whitehall Smith, The Christian Secret to a Happy Life, came out of this period. Phoebe Palmer lost her 11-month-old daughter, I think, her nurse tried to refill a lamp without putting out the flame, oil, and the oil burst into fire, and she threw it into the baby's crib, and it, it burned the baby to death. In her grieving, Phoebe Palmer felt like God was telling her, I let this happen to you because you have made an idol out of your kids, and you need to surrender. And shortly, within a year, I think, she felt like she had reached a point of surrender and that her life now had a whole new spiritual power. And she went on to become just a dynamite woman for social transformation. There was an area of New York that was the Five Points District that was so dangerous to go into, even Charles Dickens, who understood the CD sides of cities quite well, wouldn't go into this area without heavy police protection. But she went into this area, into the red light districts and gambling halls, and set up rescue missions for women who were st stuck. They educated the children. And it was part of a whole social reform that didn't just want to bring people the gospel. They wanted to meet people's physical needs, like James warned. Anyone who says, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but does not give them the things which are needed for the body, that's worthless. So people like William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, recognized that the only hope for mankind is the regeneration of the soul. But he was also adamant that if we're only trying to reach people's soul, but we do nothing to alleviate their physical suffering, we're not truly showing the love of Christ. They looked at Christ's example down here that he did alleviate human suffering, that our God does not turn a blind eye to suffering down there. And even though he cares about people's souls, he also cares about people's suffering. And this was such a firm conviction among people. Unfortunately, this social gospel became associated with a group of people who said the best way to heal man's problems is by the application of scientific principles, that it denied the depravity of man and the need for conversion. And it said people are basically good. Their problem is they're just in a bad environment. So if we can figure out ways to change the environment, then people will naturally be changed. And so the social gospel then became the gospel not just for the individual, but for a society. But it became liberal in the sense that it denied the need for conversion. So these fundamentalists who had changed their eschatology and dispensationalists, they said, we're not, we're not into the social gospel, and don't accuse me of that, 
and they were very reluctant to do things that if they tried to meet people's needs through soup kitchens or alleviating physical suffering, that another fundamentalist would come along and say, you're the social gospel, that's liberal. And they'd say, don't look at me, I'm not doing that. And so there was a reaction where they just com almost became completely uninvolved with the social movement. They thought it was more important to try to maintain and guard their pure theology and study how prophecy was being fulfilled in different events than it was to go out and meet the needs of the poor. But what did Jesus say separated the sheep from the goats? Does he say your position on eschatology separates the sheep and the goats? It's pretty blunt that those who fed the poor and ministered to him, clothed the naked, visited the people in prison, those were the people who were the genuine sheep, the people who cared about the physical needs. And that's something that people have lost sight of so often. And again, it's one of those things where people, pure doctrine, pure theology, and don't care for the poor. And then there's those who are in the trenches dealing with the poor and their hearts get broken. They, their compassion overrides their theology and they start teaching a liberal doctrine. But James says the perfect balance is pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is to keep oneself unspotted from the world, but also to visit widows and orphans in their distress. It's always both of them. But anyways, the whole Pentecostal charismatic movement grew out of this holiness movement because the holiness movement paved the way by saying that there is a, a second blessing, a level of sanctification that you reach with surrender. And this started, the second blessing, this baptism of the Holy Spirit started to become associated with speaking in tongues and through several revivals of different parts around the world, Christians started applying all the commands in the New Testament about earnestly seeking prophecy and do not forbid tongues as applying to the whole church age. And there's a lot of controversy over that. I don't speak in tongues myself, but I do think this argument that the spiritual gifts were only for the apostolic age is more an argument from an experience than it is an argument right from the text. I'm still studying these things, but I don't think the Bible gives us a firm ground to say that all manifestations of tongues and this prophecy are false. Clearly there's counterfeit tongues, counterfeit prophecies, counterfeit healings, manifestations, but I don't think we can say they're all... And Pentecostalism or Charismatics has grown to half a billion it has exploded in Africa and China. And along with this, there's a lot of heresy, not in all of it, but in the fringes of it. And I'm still undecided. I don't, I don't know what exactly is going on. I want to be discerning, but I also want to be optimistic about where God's Spirit really is leading. And that one of the things that Jesus gave his most warnings about was when the Pharisees accused his miracles of being motivated by demons. So that should always be a concern in the back of the mind, to not be so quick to write off things that we're uncomfortable with as being of Satan. 
I'm not saying don't be discerning. Absolutely be discerning. But discernment also means identifying the good, not just identifying the bad. I sometimes wonder if this was this acceptance of life in the Spirit was almost like a second reformation, just like the doctrine of the justification of faith had been buried for a thousand years. So this idea of the Spirit's power available to us and wanting to transform us was buried for a long time. I don't know, I'm just speculating. My whole message in all of this is go back to the Word, that you don't let your theology be dictated by your church's statement of faith, because that's a man-made add-on that could be false. Don't let your theology be dictated by what you hear me say today, by what your denomination says. You have, as the priesthood of all believers, you have the responsibility to always be going back to the Word, saying, God, show me what's real, but coming to the Word with this spirit of humility, where you say, I could be wrong, show me my blind spots, and then listening to what other Christians have to say. That's a huge part. There's been lots of people that said, me, God, and my Bible, but historically that's a bad formula because you end up a Joseph Smith or a William Miller. God made us to need each other, and that's where real humility comes in is when we can actually listen to other Christians and learn from their experience. Here's another example. These holiness teachers became, really opened the door for a lot of women involvement. Women couldn't vote, but they became very active preachers and teachers. And they had, I wrote down a lot of these arguments for why a woman was allowed to speak for God. Joel says that his spirit would cause young men and women to prophesy. prophesy. Paul gives women instructions for prophesying in church with a spirit of submission or their head <laughs> covered. And also, Paul mentions female deacons, and there was a prophet, his daughters prophesied. So they looked at all of this and say, they said, this is enough for us to conclude that Paul's exhortation that I do not permit a woman to teach wasn't a universal command for everyone. It was a, a localized doctrine. And again, I'm trying to accurately report history here. I'm not trying to make a theological stance. I'm just trying to record history. And so that's something to wrestle with. I mean, if, you, if your theology is that church lasts all week and not just for two hours on Sunday, then it's a little harder for women to remain silent in church. <laughs> Okay, we're going to quickly look at the progressive era. I talked about how business really thrived because they followed Adam Smith's idea that competition was the best thing and government should just give business a free hand. The creation of wealth happens really well when that happens, but capitalism while it creates a lot of wealth, does nothing for the poor or the weak or the faltering business. It's a pretty ruthless system. It's a survival of the fittest business, which is really good for the consumer. 
because when businesses are free to compete with each other ruthlessly, they're always driving the prices down and the quality of the goods up. But if you are disabled, you cannot compete in a capitalist system. If you're elderly, you fall out of the capitalist system. If your business isn't as good, you fall out of it and you just get left by the wayside if it's only motivated by greed. People saw this problem and they said, whoa, we've got all these poor and disabled. Jesus wants to feed the poor. He wants to feed the hungry. He wants to clothe the poor. So their solution was we need government to intervene, take money away from these greedy robber barons, and it should be given to the poor. That's what a Christian compassionate government does, is it heavily taxes the wealthy and it gives to the poor. And it was very popular idea. They had arguments that Jesus was a laborer, he warned against wealth. They thought competition of capitalism was sinful and that the best way to promote unity would to be a socialist system like a community. They looked at Acts and said, well, in the first century, everybody had held everything in common, so maybe that should be the idea. And there was a real Christian impulse, a Christianized version of what Marx was teaching. Marx taught that there's a working class and there's the capitalist wealthy class. And there's these classes are always in opposition to each other. And the way to achieve harmony in society would be for the working class to overthrow the wealthy class and distribute everything to everybody equally. It was tried in Russia. We'll look at that next session. It was tried in China. Communism had disastrous results. In Canada, these ideas of socialism became really predominant. In a previously Methodist pastor by the name of Tommy Douglas came to power in Saskatchewan in the CCF, the Christian Commonwealth, or Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. Saskatchewan was the first country to, uh, <laughs> the first province to bring in socialized medicine. And when he introduced it, all the doctors went on strike for three weeks because they said it will just, it won't work. But Canada's adopted it. So when you look at communism in Russia and China, you think, wow, why would anybody be ever interested in socialism or communism? It's terrible. But it's still a very popular idea. A lot of European nations and Britain and Canada have and increasingly the U.S. are moving more towards socialism. And a lot of it comes out of this progressive era where they wanted the government to intervene, break up big business, meet the names of the poor, bring in regulation, because they said business left to itself is so corrupt. It's creating slums, the worker has no rights, <laughs> these robber barons are unethical, they're creating new power, and so they thought, the government's controlled by the people, so we can grow government as big as we want, and it won't be a problem. Well, we're finding out big government is a bit of a problem, especially bureaucracy, because bureaucracy is the aspects of government that have unelected officials. So you appoint an official, he appoints someone to bureaucracy, and now 
this person in the bureaucracy is no longer accountable to anybody. And so because of that, government becomes this bloated beast that when it goes corrupt, the people are basically powerless to help it. And we've seen this in the police states. I want to leave you with just a few thoughts on socialism because these ideas of the social gospel sounded pretty appealing when they were first heard. But because God, I think, cares about economics, I wrote this down. There's five issues with socialism to consider. One, motivation. If there's no private property, which is what communism advocates, what motivates you to work? You work your tail off for the production of goods. You receive the same benefit for the person who did as little as he could all day because it's everybody gets the rewards of everything. It's not just a negative principle either because what motivates private property is not just greed, but it's also stewardship. God has given this me and I want to do this for his glory. And when you have no property, no area of your domain, you don't care about stewardship either. So that's one issue to consider with socialism. The second is the creation of wealth. A lot of people think that the amount of wealth that a nation has is set. Huey Long, who became a dictator in the state of Louisiana, unbelievable the amount of corruption he achieved, like to tell people that the good Lord gave us a pie and the wealthy people like Rockefeller and Morgan and the Brook, they just sit down, they just sat down and they took 80 of the pie, 80% of the pie for themselves. And now is that fair? He taught an idea where the amount of wealth is set. But the amount of wealth a nation has rises or falls based on its level of productivity. Wealth is not money. You can print all the money you want and you haven't created any more wealth. But being prod productive by growing more foods, creating better industry, creates more wealth to go around. The, second, the third issue to consider is regulation. When government tries to regulate this, it has created, um, it's like a leech, a draw on the wealth. It cuts into the pie without adding anything to the pie. Government regulation does nothing for the creation of wealth. And eventually, as government gets so big, it chokes business or chases businesses to other places. Also, regulation greatly decreases the incentive, the incentive to work. It, why even go through the work of all the red tape when it's such a headache? I just want to provide good quality for my employment. Regulation does have a place. Fourth thing to consider is competition. If government regulation, like price controls or consolidation of businesses, like happened in communism, there is no longer any incentive to provide a good quality product because the consumer is stuck buying the goods that you have. But if you have a free market where the government's leaving its fingers out of business, then you have two tradesmen competing. They know if, if I get shoddy, if I am corrupt, everyone's just going to go over to this other tradesman. Or if our quality slips, another company's going to come along that provides good quality. So that competition is a built-in safeguard as far as the creation of wealth. But the, the final point to consider with socialism is who's going to take care of the weak. 
because this is something that needs to be done and economics is a complex issue. You see a tremendous infighting whenever you turn on the television between Republican capitalists and the flaming liberals. They both see an aspect of the truth. The Republicans see that it's not the government's job to be choking out business because all you have to do is look at Russia and China to see how they completely choked out business and then everybody suffered. It's better for at least, even though we have very wealthy people in our nation, whenever these wealthy people go on a spending spree, they're creating jobs everywhere they go. And because there are billionaires, even the most poor people among us are still receiving square meals a day. They're not as rich as they want to be, but they have a, so much better than most people throughout history have. So the creation of wealth is a good thing. But this, the weak, who should take care of the weak? This is what the liberals see. Someone's got to meet the needs of the poor and the elderly. But that's where you don't just look to the government to take the money. You give. You've got to meet the poor. Jesus' command to feed the poor and where it's given to Christians, not to governments. The government's job is to prevent injustice, not to step in and, and meet these needs. But when the church fails to do its job of meeting the needs of the poor, then sometimes the governments have to step in. <clears throat> so I'll just, you'll see down here, there's four views of how Christianity viewed culture that were present before World War I. There's culture condemned, which was the extreme premillennialist position that said, this world's a sinking ship, we need to just come out and be separate. There was a second, the central tension. This was Moody Bible Institute, for example, which continued on Moody's tradition of premillennial eschatology and saw the world as getting worse and worse, but also thought there's still things we can do, there's still time to get out there and save people where you're still motivated to action, but you have a very limited view of just how much God plans on accomplishing before he returns. A third view was Christian civilization, which was kind of where the liberals had, had gone, that Christianity is reduced to just advancing civilization. But Christianity and all the great products of civilization that it brings in, it is not enough to just advance that if you're not also advancing changes of heart. We live in a world where the human mortality rate is as high as it's ever been. In other words, the life expectancy, sorry. The life expectancy is high as it's ever been. Outwardly, we have progressed to a point that the most utopian reformers in the 1800s, far beyond anything they could have imagined as far as the quality of life that almost every single person in North America achieves, is, is far greater than anything the utopian reformers could have handled. On the outside of people, on the inside of people, we've got an epidemic depression, we've got people addicted to all kinds of drugs, alcohol, video games, entertainment, all these things, so that we live in a world where outwardly we have it better than the greatest kings throughout history have ever lived. But we're all living in the age of Ecclesiastes, 
It's all vanity. We're empty. We're depressed. So it can never be reduced to just the advance of Christian civilization. There were some post-millennials by the name of Benjamin Warfield and John Gresham Machen, who both taught at Princeton. Their idea was that you have a firm allegiance to the kingdom of God, but that you try to bring every area under the lordship of Christ. And you always make sure that the area you bring under the lordship of Christ, it looks like Christ, and you're not just bringing it under the lordship of Christ in name only, which is what has happened in different points in church history. But Machen said, the church is perishing today through the lack of thinking, not the excess of it. Instead of destroying the arts and sciences and being indifferent to them, let us cultivate them with all enthusiasm, but consecrate them to the service of our God. Christianity must pervade not merely all nations, but also all human thought. Instead of withdrawing from the world, let us go forth joyfully, enthusiastically making the world subject to God.